0: Welcome back to the Reparadigm Podcast. Today is the last in our series of conversations about how to read the Bible. We're discussing the tools and resources that we think could help you in your reading and understanding of the Bible.
1: Doing well. Long time no see. I know. I'm excited to talk about what we're going to talk about today. We're talking about new tools available for us today for doing good biblical studies.
0: Yeah, we've circled around this a bit. I feel like in some of our conversations about extra biblical context and also some in the inner biblical context, or even in our last conversation, we talked about the better position that we are potentially in today to get to the original context of the writers of the Bible. And so I think we want to just take some time, talk about, well, what do we mean by we're in a better position today? Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, we've talked about the need to study the Bible with a good understanding of context. So we've gone through interbiblical context, extrabiblical context. Now, today we're going to talk about some of the tools, especially around extrabiblical context that are kind of more newly available that are offering some really cool insight into how we understand the Bible. Love it. Yeah. So I will start with just kind of a a little talk about history here. First, last time we spoke, we talked about a need to be a little bit cautious when we're looking at church history, Mm. about just taking the understandings of people from church history and saying, okay, their understanding is now what I'm going to believe. We gave that caution because people from church history, just like us, can be removed culturally from Mm. the biblical authors. So just like we're not able to always read the Bible intuitively well, sometimes they're also not able to read the Bible intuitively well. If we're going to read the Bible today from a different cultural context and understand what the biblical authors were trying to say, we're going to have to rely heavily on contextual studies. So doing the best we can to try to understand the context they were in so that we can understand what they were saying. One of the unfortunate realities of church history is that this method that we're describing was not always done well. Mm-hmm. One of the examples of this is to look at the way that the languages were studied. So after about 300 years in the first church, people stopped writing significantly in Greek. Mm. They kind of moved over to Latin. Yeah. So Latin became kind of this official language the church used. So it, throughout most of church history, if you're looking at kind of theological thinkers, everything's done in Latin. Um, and that means that they're using Latin translations of the Bible. Conversations are in Latin. They're just really removed from even studying the Bible in its original languages mm-hmm. and that has some pretty significant impacts on just kind of removing you from even wanting to study that cultural context
0: or being able to or even even if you did want to
1: exactly yeah if you're growing up in a culture where nobody around you knows greek or hebrew and you don't have access to good materials for greek or hebrew you're kind of out of luck mm-hmm. there's not really a good way for you to go study the bible in its original writings even if you wanted to
0: the situation you find yourself in is playing the telephone game.
1: Oh, yeah, exactly.
0: You know, you have translations of the Bible into one language mm-hmm. and then discussion about theology and doctrine and everything surrounds that new language, but is not actually original to the language of the Bible, you know, which is Greek and Hebrew. If you keep doing that over and over and over, I think you find yourself fairly far afield sometime from the original meaning of the Greek and Hebrew Bible.
1: Exactly. So even if you're a great thinker, but you're, you know, playing this telephone game 8 steps down, you're just you're working with material that's really removed from the authorial intent of the Bible.
0: Yeah, which is where we say the meaning is found and where the authority of God is found.
1: Exactly. So through a lot of church history they were in this situation where they're super removed. However, the good news is that people have started doing a better job of saying, okay, we're removed culturally from the Bible. So the only way we're going to make sure that we're understanding authorial intent well is to go start doing all this study, to get back to reading the Bible in its original languages, to get back to understanding cultural context so that we can start to recover some of these meanings better. Makes sense. So this push to get back to the Bible in its original languages starts kind of in the 16th century. Got a guy named Erasmus in 1516 who goes and says, you know what, guys, it'd be, it'd be nice if we could start actually reading the New Testament in Greek. Like, let's go back to something that was really old. I'm not going to keep just working in Latin. Mm-hmm. Let's do better. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: back to the sources. Wasn't that the call of some of the reformers?
1: Yep. So he puts together the best Greek manuscript that he can, or like a new text. And because the church didn't value the languages for a long time, they didn't do a great job of keeping and finding and documenting the manuscripts that we
0: had. Preserving those original Greek Text Or at least very early copies of those Greek texts. Exactly.
1: Yep. It turns out that whoever had these, they just kind of got scattered around different Mm -hmm. libraries or monasteries and nobody had really kept track of them. They just weren't all that important. People didn't care that much about them. So he goes and finds the best ones he's got available and puts together this Greek text. You got about six years later that somebody puts together a first lexicon of the Greek language. A lexicon here is basically a tool that's going to help you understand what all these words mean you know for a long time people hadn't been studying or speaking greek Mm. so they're kind of like doing what they can now to get back into it Mm. they had just the latin translations that they've been working off and then they found some greek It's actually in some ways kind of having to work backwards from the latin doing the best that they can so you get this first lexicon in 1522 this lexicon was 75 pages long and it was basically just a glossary list of words that are in the new testament along with latin translation so it's not definitions It's Hmm. just like, hey, if this is the Greek word that you're looking at, here's the Latin equivalent.
0: That's interesting. That seems like such a small step, but it was revolutionary at the time. Yep. Hmm. I mean, today it's like our lexicons are so detailed and we've got so many. (laughs) Yeah.
1: People continue this work of trying to kind of recover our understanding of the biblical languages. And you move into the 1800s, 1900s, people start finding and then, I guess, bringing to the public some more older manuscripts. We've found there's a couple manuscripts in particular. And you're talking
0: hand-copied yeah. manuscripts yep. of the Bible. Yeah,
1: handwritten copies mm-hmm. from the very early church of yeah. the Bible.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and these are way, way older than the manuscripts that Erasmus had been working off. We're pretty confident are actually much, much closer to what the biblical authors would have written.
0: Didn't Erasmus's Bible famously not even have all of the Greek yeah. In it, he couldn't even find enough Greek manuscripts to translate from an original, let's say, full New Testament in Greek.
1: Yeah, there were bits of Revelation that he didn't have the Greek of. So he just did the best he could. He actually reverse translated from Latin to basically come up with a Greek text. <laughs> That's yeah.
0: crazy because I mean, he was doing the best he could at the time, but today we easily have all of the Bible many times over yep. in the original Greek. Yeah. Or all of the New Testament.
1: Yeah. It's crazy that he was, you know, kind of a biblical scholar of his day and he just didn't have access they to just weren't available. the full New Testament in Greek. So I, I think that goes to show just how little this was valued throughout a big chunk of mm-hmm. church history. So we get these older biblical manuscripts that allow us to much better know what the biblical authors actually wrote in Greek. That seems important. And then as people are starting to, realize the importance of understanding these languages and understand the context, you start getting more archaeological work done. You start getting people who are like, okay, this is actually important stuff. Let's look for it. And you start finding some really, really cool discoveries. Mm -hmm. Um, So late 1800s, uh, we find this huge collection of papyri in Egypt, papyri and ostraca. So papyri are like, you actually use a plant and you write on it um, and it preserves really well in Mm -hmm. Egypt. And then ostraca is basically like chunks of pottery that people would like use as notepads. Yep. Um, We start finding a whole bunch of this. And what's really cool is this was all written in the same Koine Greek that the New Testament was written Mm. in. And it's written in around the same time. So suddenly we start having all this other Greek writings around the time. So we can start looking at this and be like, oh, look, how were they using the language? What were they writing about? It gives us a ton of interesting insight into the context of the Bible. Yeah. Another discovery that I think most Christians are aware of are the Dead Sea Scrolls.
0: At um, Qumran. In
1: Qumran, yep. So this is just a little east of Jerusalem. Bizarre discovery. Started in 1947, and then over the next about 10 years or so, we kept finding more caves with more of these scrolls. And if you were going to sit down and be like, all right, what would be the best possible find for helping me understand the context of the Bible? You'd be like, well, ideally, you'd get something from like a group of Jewish people Right up to and around the time of Jesus, like <laughs> yeah. writings like in this culture. And that's exactly what we got. Like yeah. this, is, this is kind of a gold mine for yeah. contextual studies. Mm. And this is a huge, huge set of scrolls, like yeah. famously a full scroll oh, of God. Isaiah. And then a ton of other writings from this group. They're interacting with other Jewish sects. They're writing about the community rule. Like you get really interesting insight into the daily life of a Jewish person In the couple centuries before Jesus and then kind of right up through the writing of the New Testament.
0: Yeah, so not only cultural insight into a sect of Second Temple Judaism, perhaps, Mm -hmm. but also insight into textual questions about the Old Testament, about the Hebrew Old Testament, Yep. like the preservation of certain manuscripts that were older than anything we had before, and the ability now to compare that with the translations of the time to see how much fidelity there was. And there was a decent degree, but just yep. insights into all sorts of different things.
1: Yeah. One of the things that comes up a lot in Pauline's studies is trying to understand what the Judaism that he was speaking to was and for a long time the only Judaism that people had to compare it to was like a much later rabbinical Judaism. And we've talked about how there's big differences there. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that those differences were there now because we have all of these writings from these Jewish groups yes. that were before the destruction of the temple.
0: So- oh, interesting. So, let's just put ourselves into the into the place of a reformer or something like that in 1650, okay? Yeah. So the the Judaism that they are interacting with in their time and place is not the particular Judaism that Jesus was born into and that Paul was born into obviously there's similarities they both inherit the Hebrew bible the mm-hmm. old testament but there's a lot of differences as well yep so one could not simply just go to one's neighbor that is a rabbi in 1650 common era and assume that he has all the same cultural understandings and even traditional and religious understandings as the second temple Jews at the time of Jesus and Paul.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. If you did that, you'd end up with some weird understandings or maybe misunderstand some of what's going on in the New Testament. Sure. So we get all of these discoveries that now give us really interesting insight into What turns out to be kind of the crazy world of Judaism leading up to the time of Jesus.
0: Yeah. We extend beyond the, just the Jewish context and think about all the recent discoveries post let's say 1800 that give us insight into ancient Near Eastern context in general, which tends to have a lot of cultural insight into what's going on in the Hebrew Bible, the earliest portions of our of our Bible. I think that's fascinating as well because I, here I've, I've got this list in this book that I've been reading. I've got listed just dozens and dozens of different traditions, different manuscripts, very ancient Near Eastern pieces of literature that we have found in modern times, post-1800. Okay, Like the hymn to Ta, the hymn to Ra, these are Egyptian writings, Enuma Elish stories, stories of Gilgamesh. Insights into Exodus would be like the Annals of Sargon the the Treaty between Ramses the Second, Ur Namu, the Code of Hammurabi, the Hittite Code, Middle Assyrian Code, Stories of Balaam.
1: So there's a lot of Annals of, of
0: Shalmazer. <laughs> yeah, okay. I can go on and on and on. Dozens and dozens and dozens. I was reading these out loud just to put names to pieces of literature that were found post 1800, basically in modern times, that no one in church history was aware of before. Mm. That all. Help us to understand the world of the Hebrew Bible better. I thought that'd be interesting to bring up in this context because you've been discussing
1: New Testament primarily, yeah. But yeah, the, the same, same things going on. With
0: exactly, Old the same things going on with the context of the Old Testament. So yeah, go on. I'll stop reading those. Yeah,
1: and it's not like this is a finished process. There's still discoveries going on, and then even the discoveries that have happened. This takes a lot of time and work to assemble, to scan, to translate, to publish these, and then for people to go take time, read through them and try to figure out, all right, well, what what insight does this offer for our ability to understand the Bible? So this is still very much an ongoing process that we're talking about and a a process that we're excited to keep tracking and see where it it continues to go.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And all of this work provides really interesting context that lets us better understand the Bible. So we can do better than our intuitive readings if we're willing to study this. What we find is that this work can help provide insight into the language of the authors, obviously. You see the way that words and phrases are being used in other contexts you find out that okay well this word being used this way in all these other places and then oh look it looks like it's being used a very similar way here all of a sudden that helps me do better than somebody 400 years ago who just had a gloss saying okay maybe this word matches up with you know this latin word we've just got a lot more tools and ability to understand the language now and then obviously a ton of insight into the cultural setting if you're able to see what is going on in the world around the Bible, the story of Israel and, you know, the specific history that we've got recorded that offers really good insight into some of the stuff that is influencing the way the authors are thinking and writing. So all this information together can help us shape our understanding of what the biblical authors mean when they're writing these texts. Mm -hmm. Sometimes this information will raise new questions um, and open new possibilities. So you might get, hey guys, this word is actually being used in really specific ways that nobody had really considered before. Hmm. Like, actually, it looks like maybe Paul or whoever's, whatever passage we're looking at, might be using this word in this way. And all of a sudden, that sheds new light on their whole argument. Or maybe a passage that had looked really strange, and we're like, I don't know what Paul's doing here. Passages that people had wrestled over for a long time. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, wait, if he's using this word or this phrase in this way that we see used in other writings, all of a sudden, his whole argument suddenly kind of makes more sense. Yeah, it's illuminated. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes what you'll find is you'll get scholars who are looking at all these different writings and scholars from different backgrounds who will start coming to kind of converging ideas on stuff. Yes. And that to me is where it's really cool because you'll get people from all different backgrounds and looking at different tools and contexts here who will start coming to shared ideas. And it's interesting because you start to see, okay, look, all of the people who are really looking closely at trying to understand the Bible in its context, like they're now kind of coming to some agreement. not perfect agreement. Scholars are always, the differences between scholars and their disagreements are always a a point of emphasis. But you you start to see some some big underlying shared ideas.
0: Wouldn't we expect that if the meaning of the text was assumed to be grounded within the author's intent? Yep. And if everyone was trying to get to that meaning, you would expect some overlap to start to emerge from across different Christian or religious traditions.
1: Absolutely. Like as, as a single text gets taken into all these different cultural contexts, which is what's happened throughout church history, yeah. it, it shouldn't be surprising that we see this diverging and splitting mm-hmm. set of ideas that has led to this splitting and diverging church. But when you get people who are now willing to say, okay, wait, 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 let's go back and really try to understand this in its cultural context with all these new tools that we have available to us, that you start seeing some convergence there. Yep. Like I think that's exactly what you should expect, and yep. that, that is sometimes what you see. And that, to me, is really, really exciting.
0: Yeah, that's, that's encouraging. Mm-hmm.
1: I imagine this like, almost like a criminal investigation, mm. right? Like a cold case, one where we didn't have a ton of evidence for a long time. If you suddenly got a whole bunch of new evidence available, you would recognize that you need to go back and, and review some of the theories that had been made before that evidence came to light. You would probably find that some of the theories that people had about this cold case you just have to throw out mm. like these hold no weight. We, we know now that the new evidence has disproven these theories. Yep. You probably have some theories that you're like, okay, well, it doesn't work the way it was, but we need to change parts of it. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'd get new theories yeah. that emerge, you know, new evidence, maybe points towards something that nobody had really expected before. Mm-hmm.
0: What mm-hmm. might be the most obvious conclusion <laughs> based yeah. on the new evidence.
1: Yeah. But what you would not want somebody to do is go, well, I developed my theory before this new evidence was made available. And I really, really like this theory. Mm -hmm. This theory means a lot to me. Maybe I've invested my whole career into this theory. So what I'm now going to do is just work to discredit any new evidence that comes to light. If somebody did that, you'd say, okay, this is not really a trustworthy investigator. But
0: they could argue, no, this theory that I came up with is based on the best evidence that we've had. Sure, And the pushback would be, well, at the time, but we've got new evidence. Why aren't you looking at that? Yep. And then that's the decision point. Okay, do we incorporate the new evidence into the theory? Mm -hmm. Let's say the new old evidence, right? Into the theory. Or do we stick with that theory that was based off of only a partial understanding of the case?
1: Yep. And if this is a cold case that's maybe gone cold for a few years, people would be pretty easily persuaded to change the theories, develop new theories. Yeah. The concern with church history is that we've got a case that sometimes has gone cold for you know a 1, thousand, fifteen hundred years. Mm. So you've got deeply entrenched traditions now that can be challenged by new work in scholarship.
0: New work in scholarship that is recovering older meanings exactly more original meanings
1: yes so the idea is not hey this is a new idea birthed from my context
0: (laughs) no one has thought of it before right the argument is no the author of the bible was thinking this and this this is my evidence for that exactly Hmm.
1: Yep. which then implies that hey the idea that maybe has become central to your doctrine was actually an idea birthed out of some later history Mm. right some later cultural context some Intuitive reading of the Bible that was maybe mistaken somewhat because of the context. Hey, in which now, it you're, was now
0: you're critiquing church history, don't you?
1: <laughs> so I think, obviously, there will be some pushback when these ideas start yeah. to come to light. If you get a new idea that comes out that's going to challenge some idea that people have had, there's going to be some concern and you'll, you'll get people who will have some criticisms that they're going to voice in conversations i've had with people some of the concerns or pushbacks that they've given me or maybe even i gave myself when i yeah. first started to encounter some of these sure. ideas it's not comfortable to change what you think no it's not a fun process
0: especially your religious beliefs which we affirm are like the most central <laughs>
1: exactly so you'll get reactions like well this idea goes against my church history or perhaps this doesn't agree with you know these influential thinkers you know these great minds throughout church history if a new idea that's coming out of this contextual understanding of the bible goes against what some great thinker thinks it's hard for some people to be like oh well was this great thinker wrong
0: yeah oh like, that's am i a... am i really smarter than this great person yeah
1: and no, nobody's saying that we're smarter what we're saying is we've got a lot more tools available to help us do better and evidence yeah hmm You'll get some people whose pushback will basically be, well, this idea that you're proposing is not maybe consistent with some of these other beliefs I have.
0: Oh, that poses a unique challenge because then that makes one start to rethink those other beliefs. And then people are afraid that their whole system will come apart and no one wants that experience. Yeah.
1: Either they have to rethink their whole system or they're just going to say, no, I'm going to reject this because I trust my whole system. Mm. So, therefore, I can't accept an idea that challenges a part of my system. Some people's pushback will be that, well, these ideas are coming from non-biblical resources.
0: Yeah, we've extensively talked about extra-biblical resources which shed light on the Bible.
1: Exactly. So, you and I, we're looking at a whole bunch of stories that you and I would never argue are inspired. Right. What we're arguing is that these stories help us to better understand what was going on In the mind of the biblical authors when they wrote these pieces the pop
0: culture of the time of the biblical writing
1: right so when you look at the work of scholars who are doing this they'll look at these extra biblical resources and Mm -hmm. look at passages and look at the way words and phrases and ideas are being used they're not then taking those ideas and saying okay this is now the truth that we want to hold on to no they're going to say okay this word is being used this specific way so now let's go back into the biblical context and see if that helps us understand the bible yeah. So these extra biblical resources are being used as tools. They're not being used as the source of truth yep. in any of this work. The pushback you'll get from some people is that these ideas you're proposing are new, mm. which these might be ideas that are new to the church, new for the church from the past thousand years, maybe. But we're certainly not arguing that these ideas are new to human history mm. The whole point here is we're trying to do the best work we can to understand what the biblical authors meant and what this would have meant in their context.
0: This is why it's important that we talk about this, because I've actually had that same experience in talking to folks about some, I guess, modern and let's just call them modern interpretations of the Bible. And that's the pushback. Mm -hmm. So are you saying that the church for the last 2000 years has been wrong, that no one has thought of this before? And I would say yes to the former, no to the latter, meaning, Mm -hmm. yes, it's definitely possible that the church for the last 2,000 or whatever, 1,500 years has been not quite right on this doctrinal issue. Mm -hmm. But that does not mean that no one has thought of it before. It just means that, I mean, my argument is that we are going back to the original meaning based on, we, we have really good evidence to think that this, quote, new reading is the original reading. Yep. And if that was lost on church history, that's not my problem. My obligation is just to get to the original, even if church history up until now has not done so for one reason or the other.
1: That's got to be our goal. The other pushback you'll get from some people is, well, this idea or this translation you're proposing doesn't match the translation I'm using, Oh, which in some people's minds can basically be the equivalent of, well, your idea is not biblical because look, I can open up my English Bible and the translation that I've got here doesn't match what you're. Telling me that Paul meant in this passage, oh, hmm. which is really just an appeal to the translators,
0: right? Um, which are influenced by a church historical tradition,
1: absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason that translators will want to update translations, and part of that is because these new tools that we've been talking about start to become available yep. that allow us to do better job of translations. Yes, um, most modern translations, I mean even older translations, sometimes will get updated uh, based on new research. Updates just for the language. But if you're going to point at a very specific translation and say, okay, no, any idea that challenges this, I'm going to get rid of, you're really just appealing to a very specific recent version of church history.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And one way around that, just for common, ordinary readers like me and you, one way ar- around that to not get ourselves pigeonholed into one particular meaning that might not be original, might just be an English text issue, is just to maybe just read plenty of different English translations if you're trying to do Bible study. Yep. Because sometimes you'll see like differences in readings slightly, and it's probably in those differences that the original, (laughs) that the Greek behind it, for example, or the Hebrew behind it is not very clean. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that might sound a little intimidating, but Mm -hmm. but it can be helpful that we have so many good English translations. Yeah.
1: I also think it's helpful to know that some of the work going on right now is going to influence Bible translations that come out in the future, talk about this being an ongoing process, we're able to keep doing better and better job of understanding the authors. So we should expect that that's going to lead to better and better translations of the Bible too.
0: You more and more original readings of the ancient Bible. Exactly.
1: objections people will give will be related specifically to the person or organization doing some of this work. So uh, Well, I can't believe the work that person did because I know they also believe XYZ or because they don't affirm some doctrine that's important to my church. Um, I won't believe the work of some person because they're part of another organization or because I think they're just trying to undo the work of somebody that I hold important. Oh. You get all these ad hominem attacks that are, are pretty common. And you and I have talked about this. We're certainly not claiming that any of these people are perfect. No. What we're saying is, well, let's let's first of all look at the conversation going on here. Yeah. There's a lot of people doing work on these things. So let's look at the conversation and let's look at the work they're doing. Mm-hmm. Even if somebody's a bad person, but if they can do good work, like let's be willing to <laughs> to look at
0: the work. <laughs> and, and I think most scholars are not, not bad people, by the way. <laughs> no,
1: I'm not <laughs> suggesting that. But they will it's not an uncommon way for people to get framed. If somebody's doing the work that's going to challenge a doctrine, that's very central to a church, it's pretty normal to see that person demonized by some within the church, not certainly not everybody, but just encountering that idea Mm. like, oh, certainly don't trust whatever person because for whatever reason, just be aware that that's a common reaction.
0: Yeah, that goes back to our conversation last time just about church history and traditional affinity. We need to be careful for ourselves that we don't become tribal in our mindset and be like That guy's a whatever denomination. That is not mine.
1: Yeah. Therefore,
0: he can't do good work or she's a a Presbyterian (laughs) and I'm a Baptist. She can't do uh, good work.
1: Or maybe even Catholic. That guy's a Catholic
0: Ah! scholar. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: So this pushback and this kind of concern about these ideas uh, that are coming out of scholarship really gets to be sticky when you start considering the, the fact that we've got big institutions that are in place. We've got big Christian institutions. That money, are, buddy. Yeah. We've got money and power structures and educational systems, at least within the Christianity that I'm familiar with. These organizations tend to form around kind of a specific set of theological ideas. Mm-hmm. Churches.
0: Well, don't schools, all churches do that, though? I mean, to some all extent. churches affirm that Jesus is the supreme authority, right? Sure. That's kind of what it means to be a Christian. Yeah.
1: Every church that I've ever been a part of, though, has a much longer. Statement of faith, longer list of, of essential beliefs. doctrines. Yes, exactly. You know, okay. You're usually going on to page two or three. Of the <laughs> churches <laughs> that I'm a part of. So, when a new idea comes out that just challenges an idea, maybe that's not a big problem. But if it challenges an idea that's like institutionalized um, and has become a like a core tenet of a big group of people who formed part of their Christian I- identity around this idea or this theological system, it gets to be a lot harder to change things. And the pushback against this inclusion of new contextual tools is going to be much more organized and firm. Yeah. Hmm. There's a reason that this work from the 1890s is still taking a long time to kind of make its way down to most Christians. Part of that is because you've got institutions who are set up to preserve beliefs rather than hmm. help people do a better job of actually investigating authorial intent.
0: Even if that investigation of authorial intent would reshape some beliefs. Yeah, institutions definitely have a monetary interest, actually, in that not happening sometimes.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Which is what it is. I don't know if you can change that.
1: Yeah, saying this specifically to be critical of organizations or institutions is just something I think is important for people to be aware of. Yep. So how can we start to interact with this work? If we've convinced you that this work is worth going after and that these ideas are worthwhile to investigate and to think about, how can you start doing this fortunately you don't have to go learn other languages and start trying to dig up ostraca in your backyard um you don't even have to start diving into like super scholarly journals and articles like you don't have to go read super nerdy writings yeah. or <laughs> going into really specific details and talking about you know the the loan words into hebrew like, hmm. th- there's a lot of detail here that people spend their whole lives getting into unfortunately we don't have to get into that level of detail. We're pretty fortunate that a lot of scholars who are doing this work are also really passionate about making these ideas available to people who want to interact with them. Even people without scholarly backgrounds, people with no training in languages, just people who want to faithfully serve Christ. And you've got scholars who are really excited about sharing these ideas. So they write books specifically to be read by anybody.
0: Yeah, it's not an uncommon phenomena for a scholar nowadays to write his scholarly piece for the academic community Mm -hmm. and then to write another (laughs) book and publish it. It's the same ideas, but kind of boiled down into the most essential form and in a more readable fashion for the popular level.
1: And usually a lot cheaper, too, which is kind of nice. a lot cheaper. (laughs) Yeah. So this kind of work is being made a lot more available, both in books and then in podcasts, too. Uh, podcasts or even YouTube videos. Yeah, You're starting to find scholars who are wanting to make this information really, really available. So they're doing everything they can and, and doing this in really fantastic ways. So even if you don't want to go read books, you can find this information through podcasts, through videos in formats that are really easy to share with small groups and that are really easily digestible. You can go find podcasts where different scholars who have maybe done different work are having these discussions. Mm-hmm. Um, those are some of my favorite yeah. podcasts where you'll get. A scholar or somebody who's interested in scholarly work will interview a bunch of different scholars and maybe they'll interview scholars who have similar work or overlapping work and you'll start to see this conversation going on. So you'll start to find scholars who don't agree on everything, but they've done similar work and they're starting to find some some big shared ideas that emerge out of the work. Mm -hmm. And that to me is where it gets really exciting because you're Mm -hmm. like, oh, look, you have different scholars from different backgrounds who don't agree on every detail here but there's big main themes that are emerging that are pretty central and shared across a lot of yeah. a lot of work. Yeah. So if you're going to go look for books or look for podcasts, I think we've talked about this before, but look for something that's going to give a heavy focus on context, Yeah. Um, both biblical and extra biblical. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at something in the New Testament, obviously the Old Testament is going to provide a ton of context to that. So you should expect to see interaction with that work, mm-hmm. but also expect to see interaction with other work. Mm-hmm. You know, Look at The Greek of the first century, as it's used in a Roman context Mm -hmm. um, or in that Jewish context, be looking for writers and thinkers who are emphasizing this work, because that does a lot to help us understand the Bible better. Yeah. Obviously, look for work from reputable publishers, works that have been reviewed and responded to by other scholars, peer-reviewed type stuff.
0: Yeah, interdenominational critique as well is very important, lest we get stuck in just an echo chamber of, you know, my publisher that only publishes from my group and only gets critiqued from within my group. The chances that you stumble upon the truth in that context are very slim. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Yep. And I would encourage people to interact with the work of a lot of different scholars. Yep. Find scholars maybe from a similar tradition to yours, find scholars from traditions outside of yours. And start to look for the big shared ideas that are emerging from all this different scholarship. Because if you've got Protestant, Catholic, scholars from all sorts of different denominations and backgrounds that are doing work, maybe they don't always come to the same conclusion. But like I said, you start seeing, ah, look, there's a clear idea that's emerging out of all of their work.
0: As long as they're all affirming that the meaning of the text is found within the original context of the author and recipient.
1: Yeah, exactly. Then those big shared ideas are like, oh, okay that to me is where this gets really exciting. I think I keep saying that because I am really excited about it. Yeah,
0: for sure. We live at the best time in church (laughs) history.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's really exciting to see, look, you can now trace through history all these different ideas or understandings about a piece of scripture. And now these tools are starting to help us see what looks like might actually be the authorial intent or a better understanding of authorial intent on some of these passages. And it's not because some person in whatever context sat down and said, you know, this reading feels really good to me. Right.
0: That's just arbitrary.
1: It's because teams of scholars have dedicated their lives to understanding this, the context of the scriptural passages and to understanding the way the language is getting used to understand the ideas that are being discussed. And then to go back and look at some of these biblical passages and go, okay, look, we can now trace these ideas out into the culture around it and see how this is all getting used. And suddenly a new or slightly different argument that whoever's writing here is making starts to emerge and it's super illuminating. It's like flipping a puzzle piece around until it finally fits and it's like, ah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. It's really, really fun. If you're feeling a little more nerdy, there's ways to go deeper into this. Lexicons are one of these super cool tools that have been put together. Somebody's taken all of this work that's been done, looking at all this ep- extra biblical context, the way all these words are used, and then assembling all this into what's often a massive volume of contextual tools. So you can go look up any word that's used in, like, I'm going to keep using the New Testament here. That's just because this is the work I'm yeah. more familiar with. Yeah. Go pull up any Greek word used in the New Testament, and what you'll see. Are several different ways that this word gets used in both within the biblical and the extra biblical contexts. Mm-hmm. And then we'll give you references to all of these extra biblical contexts. That, <laughs> so you can go, if you're wanting to, you can go, well, like, pull up the Sibylline oracles or, yeah. or go look at the works of Josephus and see yeah. how he's using these words. And it can give you really, really cool insight.
0: And that is how you do a word study.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. That's a much better way to do a word study. You can go start finding scholarly books and journal articles. A lot of the stuff you can find online. You'll get more exposure to the raw research being done. Yep, We've talked about podcasts. There's there's a lot of podcasts that are meant for general audience. There are also podcasts that will go a lot deeper into the scholarship being done. You can go deep into the scholarship. You can find podcasts specifically on like word nerds, people who are <laughs> going through and understanding the way words are, are used and, and go deep into the languages. There are courses available online for people who are wanting to go into the stuff. Um, you've also got... Scholars, lots of times who are also professors, Mm -hmm. they're teaching this stuff to their class, and sometimes they'll make videos or podcasts available of their actual courses. So you can now for free go listen to these scholars who are presenting some of the work that they've done in a really well-organized way in a classroom setting, which is pretty cool.
0: And if you want specific recommendations, just email us.
1: We're slowly amassing a pile of this stuff over here. You can also, if you want to, go start reading some of this extra biblical context directly yourself.
0: I don't actually think that you should put that in the deeper dive section. Mm. I think more people can do this. It's very available and very readable. Yeah. But okay. Say what you're gonna say. <laughs> I would
1: I think if somebody's not willing to go like look at a lexicon, I don't know if they're gonna be super willing to dive into some of this stuff. It's easy Maybe.
0: just to get yourself a Catholic Bible and start reading the intertestamental works, the Apocrypha. That's
1: true. Okay, yeah. That's that not one, that hard. That one is is really readily available. So the Apocrypha, like Nick mentioned, is one. Even if you don't have a Catholic Bible, if you've got a Bible app on your phone, you can switch to certain translations that will include the Apocrypha. Mm -hmm. The Apocrypha provides a ton of really cool insight into the history between the two testaments.
0: Which again is typically Jewish literature from, I don't know, 400-ish BC until roughly the destruction of Jerusalem or the time of Christ. Yep.
1: We had Bible study last night. We were looking at the idea of zealousy in the Old Testament, looking at Phineas, Hmm. and then the way that idea gets used by Paul and his interaction with Jewish zealousy in the New Testament. Mm. And we looked at Maccabees because the Maccabees dealt a lot with this. This is one of these books from the Apocrypha. And it gave a lot of really interesting insight Mm -hmm. into what Paul was dealing with in his day. So, being able to trace this idea from biblical context into extra biblical context back into biblical context gave a much cleaner understanding of what Paul was dealing with Mm -hmm. than if we had tried to just stick to the Bible itself.
0: Yep. Maccabees was the pop culture of Paul's day.
1: Yep. Um, the Septuagint, we've talked about this before. So this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. You can find English translations of this uh, available online. Um, you can get it through some Bible apps, pretty easy to find a Septuagint if you're looking for it. Mm Mm-hmm a lot of these other extra biblical documents you can find translations of them online if you search for stuff i'm pretty amazed by how easy it is to find some of this you can go find works of josephus you can go find other translated works we're super blessed to live in a time where there are a ton of christians who have done a lot of work into this because they want to understand the bible better and they want to make that work available they're passionate about presenting this stuff and making it available. Um, so we have incredible access to this stuff. Um, there's also other collections of relevant works that you can purchase online. You can go buy a big translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls really cheaply. Yeah, <laughs> I was shocked to see how cheap it is. And Interesting. You you buy it and then it shows up and you're like, oh, this is way, way bigger than I thought it was.
0: <laughs> I didn't actually want all of this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I think it's fun because then if you're interacting with some of the scholarly work and they're going to be quoting, you know, all this comes mm. out of 4QMMT or whatever. <laughs> it's fun to be able to go pull this up and be like, oh, okay, I want to actually go see now the passage that they're talking about.
0: I've got that in my library. Exactly. We're all like, we're all like ancient kings who had amassed these like <laughs> massive collections of very historical and prominent pieces of literature. That is just us. That is just like your average person now. They can just yep. buy all this stuff and have it all available, have a library bigger than the Alexandrian library.
1: It's amazing what is available to us.
0: Yeah. I, I and think, it's cheap too.
1: Yeah. I think back through some of these great thinkers of church history. The thinkers who we look at now and we're like, okay, they were kind of having to just work from an intuitive understanding of the Bible. So maybe we're going to take their ideas with a big grain of salt.
0: Like a salt lick? (laughs) A salt lick? You know, like one of those blocks you put on the ears? Oh, yes, yes, yes. A very big salt (laughs) lick.
1: Okay. If they could have had access to the tools that we have available now, I think they would have been like, oh my goodness, this is exciting. We can start doing so much better. And we have access to those tools right now, but there's still a big temptation for the church to just be like, well, let's just stick with the ideas of these people who didn't have any of this available. It's
0: more comfortable. And like you said, we've built our institutions kind of based on particular traditions.
1: Yep. So I guess in summary, my my plea for Christians Mm -hmm. is to be willing to engage in some of these new ideas that are coming out of scholarship, to be excited about the idea that we can actually start to understand biblical intent better mm-hmm. if we're willing to do the work into understanding the language of the authors
0: and we hope that in this series we have clearly outlined the method for understanding the bible when you're interacting with scholarship or anybody that has a podcast or writes a book or your you know your favorite pastor or preacher or teacher we are just simply advocating that you use this what we think to be an uncontroversial biblical method of interpretation, and that is to try to respect the author's intent as much as is possible. To try to do that means to try to understand their culture and their context better. That's the only way in to understand the authorial intent of the Bible. If we rigorously apply that hermeneutical method, we should be able to sift through the vast wealth of of information that comes at us today, and we should be able to choose to listen to people who are also aiming toward that same goal and providing us the tools to get there. Yep. It's pretty defined, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got a way of doing this better. We've got tools available that almost everybody agrees are, are valuable, but people tend to be hesitant to want to start actually using them hmm. or they, it makes them nervous. And that would be our push. Like, If you agree with this method, if, if this hermeneutic series hasn't been offensive or challenging to you, if you've been like, yeah, this all makes perfect sense.
0: So I don't think we've said anything really controversial, to no. be honest with you.
1: When we started that first podcast off with looking at the statements on hermeneutics from yes. lots of different Christian organizations yep. and everybody takes
0: authorial intent, authorial, authorial intent. intent. Yes. So
1: if we're going to be serious about that, then we're going to be serious about understanding intent through context. Yep. The reality is that we now have a vast array of resources available to us to understand that context that we're not available That long ago. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to truly want to seek out authorial intent, then we're going to need to be willing to utilize and value these tools and follow this thread where it goes. Even if that starts to challenge some of the other traditions that we have held dear.
0: Amen. Preach. Amen. On that note, I, I will say too, The rest of our podcast, we're going to talk about a lot of different theological issues or biblical issues or interpretive issues or societal issues or ethical issues. We're going to talk about a lot of that stuff just because it's interesting to me and you, and we have these conversations anyway, so we're basically just recording them now. We're not always going to outline our hermeneutical method, but we hope that this series clearly defines how we're reading our Bibles. If our listeners disagree with us on stuff, that is obviously just fine. And actually, we invite critiques to our theology and to our application of the Bible based on that hermeneutical method. So please critique our ideas on things, but critique them from within a rock-solid hermeneutical method, which mm-hmm. seeks to ground the meaning of the text in the author's intent. Yes, please. So send us emails. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, dude. Thanks for outlining all of that. Yeah, it's really important just to say all these things out loud and just to make people aware of kind of the, the modern landscape that we're in. It is rather exciting, the time and place that we live in. This episode wraps up our introductory How to Read the Bible series. We've got a lot more coming your way down the road. We've got a couple guest interviews that we're gonna release for you in the next couple weeks. Then we're doing a short series on the image of God and implications on environmental care. Early in the new year, we'll be releasing a series of conversations with guest interviews discussing violence, power, and the kingdom of God. The Reparadimed podcast, along with original music is recorded, mixed, and produced by myself, Nick Payne, and Matthew Westlake. Our theme music is provided by the South Carolina band, Post Humorous special thanks to Dr. John Walton and Dr. Teresa Morgan for their guest contributions to this series. If you'd like to interact with us more, please check out our beautiful website at Reparadimed.com. No dash, just Reparadimed.com. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can email us at Reparadimed at gmail.com. Again, no dash, just Reparadimed at gmail.com.